He's also repelled by the idea of the advertising community. He didn't like buying a company that was so reliant on advertising. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, November 27th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discuss the slew of advertisers pulling back from Twitter and how the company can survive such a dramatic hit to its main source of revenue. We also look into Redbird IMI's bid to take over the Telegraph in the UK and whether this foreign-led effort will actually get through a Tory-led government. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by SleepMe comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy monday everybody welcome to the powers that be if it's monday it's media monday i hope everyone had a wonderful thanksgiving holiday john kelly how was your thanksgiving any highlights it was great you know, we were we were off the grid for a little bit, which was very restorative and nice. And we went to Vermont, as I told you, and it was a perfect trip. Thrilled to leave and get up there. Thrilled to come back. I, I chuckled a little bit listening to you and Dylan talk about um, how this was the beginning of the slow fade into the end of the year, knowing that obviously that's not true. We're just getting started. Um, and it's going to be an exciting December. And uh we got end of year goals to meet and, and numbers to hit, but it was a great little break. Uh, I imagine mine was a lot colder than yours was in Manhattan Beach. It absolutely was. It was a, actually pretty warm all week out here in LA. But yeah, I mean, Dylan called me out in real time when I mentioned that you know, we might be slowing down for the cozy holidays. Uh, and he said, well, the boss man, John, will be listening and saying, no, 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 no. 
we're going to keep our foot on the gas for the rest of the year. In terms of actual news, the idea that news kind of slows down over the holidays is a false one. It reminds me of the, um, there was like this old saw in Washington that, you know, August was like really slow month because Congress is in recess that like news wasn't happening. And that's also a huge myth, clearly. Oh, it's, it's, it's total nonsense at the end of the year. I mean, when you think about all the like deal calendars, you know, there's, um, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're in finance or media, you, you want the deal done by Thanksgiving because you know it's going to be harder to close between Thanksgiving and Christmas because the lawyers have vacation schedules and, mm-hmm. you know, the the associates have to work on deals and, and you want it all done. But everyone is jamming right now. And, uh, and don't forget, for many of the industries that we pay attention to here at Puck, the last month is what's going to determine whether or not people hit their numbers and, and make their bonuses and what their January and February are going to look like. There's a, there's a reason that uh, a lot of house and apartment buying in Manhattan happens in February. That's when the the money hits the uh, private oh, equity and, right? and Wall Street bank account. Yeah, of course. Well, December is also the month when all of these Republican presidential candidates are going to have to really grind in Iowa because the caucuses are coming in January. It's here. John, speaking of deals, uh, I do want to ask you in this episode about Redbird IMI's pitch to buy the Telegraph in the UK, this sort of heralded center-right magazine beloved by the Tories and the Tory class. That's the investment group run by former CNN honcho Jeff Zucker. Uh, And it's just an interesting story that Dylan covered, wrote about. Uh, We'll get to that, though. Dylan and I also talked the other day about Linda Yaccarino and Elon Musk and the current latest struggles at Twitter slash X, you know, and we went into the backstory here, which is that uh, Elon Musk, you know, seemed to agree with a post on X that accused Jews of hating white people. Uh, Media Matters also put out uh, a report basically saying that, you know, advertisers, their ads were running against anti-Semitic and like fringe style content. All of these companies, major brands, paused advertising. This company has already dropped from like $44 billion from when Elon Musk bought it down by more than $20 billion from there. Uh, and, you know, we don't even know how, how bad it's getting at the moment. But it's not good. But I did want to ask you, I mean, yeah. we paused advertising on X2, didn't we, John? We did, yeah. We, we paused it soon after the, the comments were made. And so it's been more than a week. And, you know, I think the Times reported that they're going to lose like $75 billion in the quarter, which is not a lot of money. Wow. Not a lot of money for, for a company like Twitter. But it actually, all of this underscores to me how small Twitter has become. You know, I think uh, mm. if you sort of work backwards, uh, zoom out and, and, and let's put this into context. Elon Musk bought it for $44 billion. It's probably worth according to his private calculations, less than $20 billion. There's about mm-hmm. $13 billion in debt on this thing. And I think it struggled to make about a billion dollars uh, a year. And so mm-hmm. the, the $75 million is is material. But there's obviously, I think, a belief inside of Twitter, or X, excuse me, it's very hard to, to get used to that, that the way it's made money in the past is not going to be the way it's made money in the future. And the way it made, made, mm-hmm. made money in the past was entirely based on advertising against essentially user-generated content. And that's why a lot of traditional media was so late to get to sort of get the hang of things with social media that we were used to making things and mm-hmm. having, you know, in, in my experience, you know, uh, I started my career working on magazines, making magazines and expecting that Chanel and Carolina Herrera and Louis Vuitton would want to be adjacent to that. And then in this new world, it was 
people writing short burst tweets and getting CPG and Procter and Gamble and, and GE to be next to that for a fee. And they built an extraordinary ad infrastructure to service that. I thought the time story was a little hyperbolic. I think that a number of brands mm -hmm. have paused. Uh, brands will come back to Twitter. I actually also think that it's unfair on some level over time to purely judge a company. You know, Twitter is filled with, you know, maybe not thousands and thousands of employees anymore, but hundreds and hundreds who need a job, who don't espouse Elon Musk's views. I think Linda Yaccarino, um, it's a little bit different when you're the CEO. She's tried to distance herself as well. There were some distancing statements after the initial awful Musk retweeting. But it's clear that Musk, as the CTO or head of product or whatever sort of informal role he's taking there, wants to find a way to not he really wants to find a way to be famous himself, which which seems like part of you know where, where the, the psychosis of all this goes off the road. But he totally, and I may be going out there on a limb a little bit here, uh, but to me, he seems like he wants to create a product that is not actually predicated on the whims of any other brand or person's point of view. That he wants a subscription product, he wants to be in services, and he wants to not care what people think. And again, I, I don't want to get into our armchair Freudianism here, but. Mm -hmm. When Musk does terrible things, I think it's partly a reflection of the fact that he's probably a terrible guy, but also he wants to make a point like a child and doesn't know how exactly to express it. And my sense here is that obviously what he did was completely anti-Semitic and disgusting, but that he's also repelled by the idea of the advertising community. He didn't like buying a company that was so reliant on advertising. And he almost wants to sink that business single-handedly in order to build something new. Now, I know that I'm, I'm I'm going out on a limb here, but I absolutely do believe that. And of course, in like patented Musk fashion, he brought in a CEO who comes from this ad community, who's sensitive to this, and he's putting her through a baptism by fire in very real time. Can she accept his view here that, that the, the revenue model for Twitter has to be something very, very different? And I don't know, man. I mean, people who come from... The Yakarino world are all just waiting for her to capitulate, and uh, and the question is when. Yeah, I mean, you made, you made so many great points there about Twitter as a business. Among them, like seventy five million dollars is material. You know, at least before Elon came along, semi healthy. It is business, now. Yeah, but it, like, it is not, now. It is now. Yeah, yeah, it is now. But like, it's not at the scale of these other big platforms in terms of advertising revenue. Uh, you know, she said. She was reported the other day in Semaphore as demanding that the company find a way to make $100 million in advertising around political campaigns heading into 2024. Mm. That's not going to happen. It's just absolutely not going to happen. I mean, Twitter in 2020, according to Open Secrets, attracted only $5.2 million from political ads. So like ramping that up to $100 million would put them at the level of Meta and, and Google YouTube in terms of advertising. Those are the primary places, at least in politics, where you have like th those where you go to advertise and then you Twitter is like a thing that you might do on the side, but maybe some fundraising, maybe some email acquisition. But what I'm describing extends to, I think all advertisers, like Twitter is not an essential place to put your your digital spend it is nice to have sometimes and that was before Elon Musk came along so incredibly challenging but I did want to ask you without you don't have to get into to Puck's thinking on this too much but as a CEO of a company that decided to pull back from its advertising spend on Twitter which companies maybe media companies maybe just mm. consumer brands whatever which companies do you think are like more reliant 
on Twitter. People who actually want to keep spending money there, need to keep spending money there, and are kind of in a in a bind right now because of that Elon tweet. Yeah. And th- th- that is a great question. And by the way, dude, it is the great question. If you look back, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I feel like there was a generation of companies that were built on direct-to-consumer channel marketing. They were insurgent challenger brands in pretty much every category of the economy. And you and I know this well because we're we're targeted for them. It's the Vori shorts of the world, right, who uh, didn't initially go into bricks and mortar. I'm thinking of the Caspers. Warby Parker was obviously the OG of this. And when I say channel marketing, they realized that they didn't have to create stores. They didn't have to create boutiques. You know, in Soho, they didn't have to advertise in billboards. They could find their customers on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Snap, uh, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, et cetera, on Reddit, on on, on uh, Google AdSense. And they saved all the money and they, and they raised a ton of money from, from venture investors. And they, they saved it on the traditional kind of go-to-market physical infrastructure and spent it on marketing. And, and there are many, many success stories in media, a company like the Athletic is, is an obvious one. Axios was built in large part on creating an inorganic audience on top of a very potent organic audience. And there is nothing wrong with this. Like, these, this is not a criticism. This is a necessity. If you couldn't master this kind of channel marketing, you were absolutely screwed. And, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, and I'm sort of reflecting my demographic and, and our demographic and thinking about when I got companies like FanDuel and DraftKings. I mean, just incessant. Imagine looking at your Twitter feed and, in 2019, Peter, I feel like that was just all that you know that, that you received because they had just <laughs> raised around and they were incessantly spending and they knew that gambling was going to become you know legal in certain states. Now, Twitter absolutely participated in that significantly, and that economy still exists, but it's changing. And channel marketing has gotten more sophisticated. I think we, we, we see this at Puck. I will tell you that uh, without betraying confidences, I received a number of calls from media CEOs over the break asking what they were going to do if they were advertising. Huh. There were a couple of people who I think were frustrated that they didn't want to go off Twitter. And, the, you know, these are complicated decisions. Uh, no one's trying to write this in sand and stone. When you're running a business, you have a, a lot of decisions you've got to hold in, in your head at, at one time. But there's no question to me that if you are, you know, if you're Disney or Paramount or Comcast or some of these large companies that have paused, you probably don't need Twitter to survive. Or if you do, you know, you're, you're in a world of trouble. But if you are a smaller CBG company or, you know, an apparel company, I think that those are probably uh, more challenged. A lot of that money has moved to Instagram, which is a much better place to buy things, you know, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I imagine, too, that if, if demographically you're aligned with who uses Twitter, which is probably more male than female, probably more domestic than international right now, probably more politically oriented and sports oriented, then it's a very, very, very meaningful channel. So if, if you're a, mm-hmm. you know, if you are a DraftKings, if, if you're, you know, Karuma Shoes, um, I'm trying to think of some others, then the trade-off is probably about whether, you know, just, just thinking from a purely financial standpoint, and I'm, I'm taking the moral element out of this, I'm just thinking, talking about this purely financially, will people be upset if you're marketing on Twitter now, or will they be upset in two months when they don't hit their bonus numbers because you lost revenue by not marketing there. And there are still companies that are making tens of millions in sales off of being on that channel. But my hunch is mm. that over time that that is changing. I, I do think that more and more the, the product is just harder to use. It's not as timely, not just for news consumers, but for a lot of people. And, you know, I mean, I, I 
see the amount of, you know, Twitter knows that I'm a father with little kids who buy dumb crap for them. And I get served that stuff all the time. But I'm probably more likely to put my credit card in on Instagram than I am on Twitter. I don't think the the targeting, though, like it might know you're a dad and knows I'm like a 40 something white guy with a certain income. But like the targeting isn't great on Twitter. I mean, I get tell me if you get these too. like and here's a free story idea for any reporter out there who wants to write about (laughs) this advertising thing. But like someone go interview uh, Cheech and Chong's weed gummy company because they are like blitzing Twitter with ads. And those aren't just like targeted, like people who aren't the target market for that are getting those ads. So I'm wondering like how much money they are making off of their Twitter advertising in in this space when all the big brands are pulling back. You are totally, totally right. And these are all like, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here, but like these are market signals. You know, if you're an attentive chief product officer or, or whatever Elon Musk's job is there now, These are signs that actually the worst part of Twitter, putting aside his terrible behavior, the worst part of Twitter is the product. Now, they proved they could run an MVP product (laughs) with a much smaller staff. No, but I'm serious. But but the, the worst part is, look, like if you were to take out your phone right now and you were to go online on Twitter, you would probably see just I'm just imagining what your what your feed would look like. News stories from the Washington Post from three days ago. Something about, you know, the, the, the Cincinnati Reds end of season, which happened, you know, five weeks ago. Like, it's not current and relevant. And when you think about what Jack Dorsey created the company to be, or Jack and Ev, it really was, I think, in the end, uh, Ev was, uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, unspoken genius of this and, and, and the original money into it. It was a status update app. That was the value proposition. Yep, yep. What I'm yep. doing now, what I'm reading now, what I'm thinking now. And yep. now it's what I'm doing three days ago, you know, which is a lot less relevant, particularly for yep. people. Um, and we're taping this on, on a, a Sunday at the end of, you know, the, the Black Friday shopping season, like especially when people have their credit cards out and they want to shop, they will go somewhere else. And obviously this is the terrain that TikTok is trying to eventually take over. Although, of, of course, you know, the, the question becomes, would you rather take your credit card out for a, a, a company, you know, with a direct portal to the, you know, Chinese communist government or um, to Elon Musk's uh, ego pills? I don't know, brother. It's a, it's a complicated coin flip. Yeah, I want to go. I want to go to a break. But just one more thought before we do that. Elon Musk, you know, people do have a tendency, especially in the current narrative around him, to underestimate him. He's not an idiot for wanting to diversify revenue. He's not an idiot for wanting to yep. create new products. He's going about it in an odd, unusual way. But here's this has been the problem with Twitter for a very long time that you uh, first mentioned. Uh, the core user base has always been pretty small relative to the other platforms. But those core power users who have been using it since like 2006, 2007, 8, 9, 10, the core use case is tweeting out text, sometimes text with pictures, sometimes text with video. Yeah. But they can't force the audience. They can't reverse engineer the core use case of the product and try to make it something else. Because like, remember Fleets? Remember Moments? Mm-hmm. Uh, spaces was slightly more sticky. But like these product innovations that were supposed to create new lanes for Twitter didn't work because the users didn't want them. They just want to go on and either scroll or read text, pictures, video. That's it. So like that is an advertising business, and uh, you know it'll be very interesting yeah. to see <laughs> how we can move beyond that. Um, we should go to break, John. I'll come back and ask you about Redbird's push to acquire the Telegraph.co.uk.
Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back to the Powers That Be, everybody. It's Media Monday, of course. John Dillon wrote a piece the other day about Redbird's push to acquire the hallowed Telegraph newspaper and The Spectator. There is some resistance both in those media organizations, but also in the sort of center-right Tory class in the UK to have this (laughs) foreign-owned capital partner firm take over these newspapers. Um, Jeff Zucker, obviously involved, interesting name. Jerry Cardinal leads Redbird. The fund here is also backed by Sheikh Mansour from the UAE. And if the UK, like, media minister, whatever the job title is, they're like cabinet-level secretary who, uh, you know, is uh, in charge of sort of media regulation matters uh, in a Tory government, uh, we should say, has come out and said she might do a review of this and, and maybe try to stop it. Basically, the objection is, like what I just said, they don't want foreigners coming in and like taking over their newspapers, <laughs> which here in the U.S. sounds crazy because that happens all the time. What's your take on this? I mean, is Jeff Zucker going to be running The Telegraph at some point soon? Peter, I, lo- I love this story. This is a total succession story to me. 
the Barclays family owns a Telegraph and the Spectator. Everyone who you think would be hanging around the hoop here was at one point involved or interested. Lord Rothmere, who owns Daily Mail, Murdoch, Matthias Doffner from uh, Axel, Will Lewis, who uh, is now the CEO of the Washington Post Company, was uh-huh. at one point involved in a bid. And it turns out right now that the auction was paused last week when Jeff's group came in. That's Redbird IMI. And you're right. It, it, it's uh, Jerry Cardinale. He, get it? Uh, Cardinale, Redbird, mm-hmm. came in and paid a debt for equity swap. So there's 1.4 billion in debt on the Telegraph and the Spectator, and the Telegraph is the main asset. And they're going to put up 1.4 billion in cash, and the majority of the money is going to come from the Kingdom of Qatar. And that raises a lot of issues. You know, I think in the UK they're very comfortable having their football teams owned by uh, Middle Eastern potentates, but they're a little more. Uh, skittish about having their their news entities owned by them. I think that the second point that's fascinating to me is the Daily Mail is the template here. So Lord Rothmere owns the Mail, and uh, Paul Zwellenberg, very smart, serious guy who was a CEO there for years, came up with the template of center-right news organization becoming the sort of tabloid of the English-speaking world. You know, the, the, the Daily Mail is absolutely the addiction of the working classes, and it is a sort of guilty pleasure of the, the landed gentry, both in the UK and the US. And there's a, there's a belief that the spectator could absolutely pursue a version of that. And there's enough, I think, data points in the US when you look at things like the Bulwark uh, or Barry Weiss's yeah. Free Press, that there, uh, and even um, Ben Shapiro and, and Jeremy Boring's Daily Wire, there are like there's like an archipelago of of right wing media um, entities that are sort of in between Fox News and the Journal, and I think people believe, and I'm not trying to read Jeff's mind. I've never, uh, you know, I, I don't know what their thesis looks like inside the meeting halls and and uh, the deal rooms at Redbird, but I presume that they think that they can create a, a right wing lifestyle brand uh, news brand the same way that the Times has created a left wing lifestyle news brand and that they can move it to the United States they can probably take it up market a little bit they can create a political home for a sort of disenfranchised group of Republicans and and they continue to uh, stay uh, relevant in, in the Tory elite and then build around that all the attendant businesses that you would Imagine and and uh, increase the the scale and therefore increasing the, the size of the advertising business. Now, don't forget the, the the revenue on this business is real already, right? I think if you put them together, it's around a little under under three hundred million dollars a year. I'm just guessing here. You know, in my sort of mental scale of media companies, I think Axios made around the time of acquisition around 100 million. I think Politico makes 200 plus million. I think Insiders probably a little bit, you know, around Axios. The Washington Post, I'm guessing, is, you know, 500 to 600 million dollars a year. So they're looking at a meaningful asset and they probably are projecting a value that's much more significant because and and like again i'm speculating and hypothesizing here i don't know this obviously i've not seen anything in the deal book but when the auction was paused i thought huh 1.4 billion debt to equity that means that redbird and the guitaris are paying off the debt and if they're pausing the auction that means no one else is doing that, right? That this is a deal that allows the Barclay family to just walk away from this thing and not have to service the debt anymore. And I presume if they paused the auction, it meant that it was a it was a higher value that Redbird essentially got to 1.4 million off of, let's say 270, 300 million dollars in revenue, which was a higher multiple 
than the other groups could get to. I think everyone does really want this. I think that the investment theses are similar across all the people who've been interested in this. The question becomes, who wants it the most and who sees the biggest upside in it? And uh, one of the challenges now, of course, is, you know, it, it harkens back to what happened uh, under the Trump administration with AT&T and, and, and Warner Media. I'm sure the Barkley family would like the, the debt relief. I'm sure that they would like this deal to go through quickly. It's pretty clear based on what you mentioned about the UK minister that this is not going to go through quickly. They're They're kicking up a stink for a lot of very meaningful reasons that there are probably going to be people in consequential positions in that company that are skeptical about the position of their ownership. I, I think Jeff Zucker wants to own this because he wants to operate a, a media asset at a very high level. What does Sheikh Mansour want out of this? I don't know. Owning the Telegraph is a lot different than owning Manchester City. And I think that th there, there are valid reasons to scrutinize this. And I think that there's going to be a lot of political pressure and I'm not positive that this deal goes through. So whether or not this goes through, um, what's the appeal here, John? I mean, in Dylan's piece, he sort of alluded to the idea of, of scaling in the manner of the Daily Mail, like the building blocks are there. The Daily Mail has much more shameless yeah. tabloid impulses than the Telegraph does, but that made very smart early bets on distribution. The Daily Mail on Snapchat is still a hit. Like that's one of our best performing pieces of content. It's been that way since Discover launched back in 2015. I mean, a lot of people read the Daily Mail in digital form. Can the Telegraph aspire to compete uh, with, with them? Is that is that the goal here? I think that on the lifestyle piece, I think the Telegraph has, has an opportunity to go beyond being this uh, Tory, you know, sort of blessed script. I think the real opportunity, like just sort of speaking bluntly here, is Rupert Murdoch is 90-something years old, and there is a chance to take over the thinking wing of the conservative world in both mm. the United Kingdom and the United States. And this is a relatively inexpensive vessel to do that. And I think that that's mm. absolutely what's driving this deal all around people I think we're surprised that Jeff was involved because CNN was liberal inflected during his reign, but he's a very smart guy and he sees the opportunity here and it is vast. You know, it's it's 47% mm. of the United States potentially is the TAM. It's something similar in Britain in a post-Murdoch world. It's hard to imagine just how big this thing could get if you execute it right and, and, and get a little bit of luck. But the post-Murdoch play is what screams to me to be the real opportunity here. Watch out, Bulwark. The Telegraph is coming for you. <laughs> John, have a great week, man. I'll see you in the Slack. All right, you too, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.